Oh sure, nowadays everyone is having their sex changed. Bruce becoming Kalen wasn't that big of a deal. But back in the early 1950s, things were different. So different, it would require a trip to Denmark for a man to become a woman. Today we have the Christine Jorgensen story on the 142nd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. Happy New Year! Okay, I'm a little late with my greeting, but I'm so glad to be back for another year of storytelling. I hope everybody is doing well. So this year I thought I'd add something new to Coffee with Jeff. A pre-story bit called, What's Wrong with This Picture? It's about movies. You see, to really enjoy a movie, one needs the ability to suspend disbelief. I mean, if you nitpick any fictional film, you can find faults and things that just don't make any sense. These must be overlooked, but sometimes, and this gets worse as I get older, I find it harder and harder not to let these things ruin a film for me. So let's try the first episode of What's Wrong With This Picture? So for the first one, I picked some low-hanging fruit. Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace. Can I ask, why was Anakin Skywalker's mother left behind to be a slave when the Jedis took the young boy away? There hasn't been one reasonable explanation that I've heard. Surely the wise and powerful Jedi would be smart enough to know that this was a bad idea. It could only lead to trouble. And are you telling me when Attican was being trained as a Jedi for all those years, he never went to the council, to Yoda and, and whatnot and asked, Hey, I don't want to bother you, but you think maybe you could buy my mom out of slavery? <laughs> I mean, look at this palace. We obviously have a good cash flow. Look, all the trouble in every episode after episode one goes back to Attican's mother being left behind. I mean, aren't the Jedi supposed to be fighting things like injustice and slavery? <sighs> well, thanks for letting me get that off my chest. It's been festering for 18 years. So here in Chicagoland, it's been cold, very cold, below zero. All right, we've had a couple of warm days in there, but now it's back to the I'll die out there weather. So pour a hot cup of coffee and join me as I tell you the story of what drove a man to become a woman. This podcast is part of the SciCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash SciCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. 26-year-old ex-GI arrives home from Denmark where doctors converted him into a woman. Two years ago, the name was George Jorgensen. Today, it's Christine. 
have you been offered a movie contract? Yes, but I haven't accepted it. Do you uh, do you have any plans regarding the theater? No, I don't think so. And Christine? Uh, are you going to go on with your photography? I hope so, yes. I see. I don't have any plans at the moment, and I thank you all for coming, but I think it's too much. Fine, thank you very much. We all know the story of Olympic athlete hero Bruce Jenner. After completing sex rearrangement surgery, he became Caitlyn Jenner. In the 1970s, tennis star Richard Raskin created headlines when she became Renee Richards and began a court battle for her right to play tennis with the ladies. But the first big, well-publicized sex change came in the early 1950s. For those of you who know the works of filmmaker Edward D. Wood Jr. or have seen the Tim Burton film based on his life, might remember that his first feature film, Glen or Glenda, was originally going to be a low-budget bio-flick of a woman named Christine Jorgensen. Of course, it didn't work out that way, and Ed made the film into a wonderfully bizarre personal film about cross-dressing. But Christine Jorgensen was a real person who was born a man and was the first person to become widely known in the United States for having sex reassignment surgery. She was born George William Jorgensen Jr. on May 30, 1926. He was the second child of George and Florence, who were both very loving parents. He grew up in a working-class family in the Bronx, New York City. As a child, he was given the nickname Brood from his sister, Dorothy, due to the way she pronounced the word brother. Although Dorothy loved George, she was often embarrassed by the way other kids teased him in school. She would ask her parents why George couldn't be more boyish like the other young men in the neighborhood. George's parents couldn't really answer. Everybody knew there was something different about him, but no one knew exactly why. Many who knew George as a child would say that he wasn't all that different from the other boys. Yet she described herself in the 1967 autobiography as a frail, toe-headed, introverted child, and that he was sensitive, shy, withdrawn, and miserable. One story she tells is of a Christmas time in which he wanted a pretty doll with long golden hair but was disappointed to get a red train. Christine would later say that this was probably the point in her life that she began to become aware of the differences between his sister and himself. During the school years, he was often teased for being a sissy, and these were wounds that never completely healed. At the age of around seven, he was teased cruelly at summer camp by the other boys for his female characteristics. He begged his parents to let him come home, which they eventually did. Later, when he visited his sister at a girls-only camp, he felt at ease there, free of harassment. When he was in eighth grade, his teacher, after discovering that George had needlework hidden in his desk, embarrassed him in front of the class, asking the question, Do you think this is anything for a red-blooded boy to have in his desk? The next thing we know, George will be bringing knitting to school. Now, much of these stories of embarrassment come from Christine's autobiography, and no one can really say how much is true and how much was exaggerated. Many of those who knew her as a young boy said that he was a slender, underweight lad, but also outgoing, friendly, athletic, and self-confident. Of course, his attraction to other boys was always a problem. He grew up in a religious family and was well aware that homosexuality was forbidden. 
He did his best during these years to come off as a totally straight guy, though even from a very early age, he knew he wanted to be a woman. During his high school years, he began to find new interests. He took a trip to Washington, D.C. and developed a passion for both photography and travel. During his senior year in high school, he began taking an intense photography course at New York's Institute of Photography. His parents were always very supportive and paid his tuition, even though money was very tight at the time. Now and again, it was believed that he would have a sexual relationship with a male and end up feeling guilt and shame, promising himself he would abstain from these sexual relationships in the future. He was also a closet cross-dresser. He had women's clothes of his own, and sometimes he borrowed his sister's clothes. Of course, this was all done in the privacy of the Jorgensen home when he was by himself. Privacy is very important for most young men and women, but for George, it was even more so. His parents knew he was having a difficult time in school, but figured or hoped it was just a phase that he would grow out of as he got older. George was still in high school when World War II started, and he was required to report for the local Selective Service Board for a physical examination. Twice he went, and twice he was rejected because he was under the minimum weight. At the time, he was only 110 pounds. George spent the five years after high school drifting from job to job. Now, according to the book, Becoming a Woman, a biography of Christine Jorgensen by Richard F. Doctor, a book in which a lot of this episode's information is based on, George did not have a lack of direction. But this was more of a period of experimentation to formulate and consolidate a personal identity. He wasn't wandering aimlessly, but searching, sharing, and examining his transgender feelings. He was working for RKO Pathé as an editor of short films when he was told to report again to the pre-induction physical for the army. This was odd, George thought, because World War II had ended and, and hundreds of men were being discharged. And since he already failed the army physical twice, he wasn't worried. But much to his surprise, he was classified as A1 and was told to get his affairs in order. And it didn't take long after reporting that he discovered why he was needed. It was to help the World War II Army veterans return to civilian life. One of the things he enjoyed about being in the Army was how proud it made his parents feel. He knew it filled them both with a sense of pride to say that their son was in the military. He could see it in their eyes when he visited home wearing his Army uniform. His mother was so pleased to see him looking so healthy and showing confidence. And he seemed to take to military life as well. He kept up the front of being a heterosexual man, never, according to Christine, having any affairs while in the service. In December of 1946, after 14 months, he was given an honorable discharge. For a short time after the Army, he worked as a chauffeur for Archeo Pathé, the only job that they had available at the time. Then he decided to follow a friend, June Jensen, to Hollywood and try his luck at being a photographer. In California, he rented a room in the same house as June. Helen Johnson was one of June's friends from Denmark who stayed with June for a time. It was with these two women that George first opened up about the way he felt. This began after he explained just how disgusted he was after being propositioned by a gay filmmaker. 
Yes, he was attracted to men, but due to George's religious upbringing, he thought homosexuality was wrong. He knew that if he could be a woman, his relationships with men would be one of a heterosexual nature and therefore be respectable. Soon Helen returned to Denmark and June got married. Without any future in Hollywood, George moved back home to New York. He was depressed and spent most of his time feeling like a failure, drinking, smoking, going to movies, and sometimes he felt suicidal. For a while, George found hope in the church and a renewed interest in photography. And then one day, he came across something that changed his life. He was at the local library and found a book called The Male Hormone. The short book, published in 1945 by Paul D. Cruff, an American microbiologist, was about testosterone and its potential medical benefits. The book gave George an explanation, at least in his mind, of why he had these homosexual feelings. He learned about how a major source of testosterone in men was produced in the testicles, but they also produced small amounts of estrogen, the female hormone. Women, on the other hand, do just the opposite, producing mostly estrogen and small amounts of testosterone. He wondered if maybe he had an imbalance that caused his problems. He purchased his own copy of the book and began to have feelings of hope. The new research seemed to be the answers to his depression. He wondered, however, if taking more testosterone would help him with his homosexual feelings, and if so, was that something he really wanted? He wasn't really interested in being manlier. What he really wanted was to live as a woman. Would estrogen help him become a woman? He was so determined to understand human psychology and hormones, he used the GI Bill to enroll in the Manhattan Medical and Dental Assistance School. At the school, he met Mrs. Guenevieve Angelo, who was somebody he found easy to talk to, much like the two ladies in California. It was Guenevieve who said he should talk to her husband, Dr. Joseph Angelo, which is what he did. He explained his situation to the doctor with great passion, and although Dr. Angelo did his best to play devil's advocate, George was determined more than ever to become a woman. Two things came from his meeting with Angelo. First, somehow he got a prescription for commercially synthesized female hormones, but next he learned that sex change operations were being done in Europe. So just before Christmas of 1949, the 23-year-old George Jurgensen purchased a one-way ticket to Copenhagen on the Swedish-American ocean liner Stockholm. While he told his family it was for a vacation, his sister Dolly suspected there was something more to the trip. Luckily for George, he had a friend in Copenhagen, Helen Johnson, the one he had confessed his feelings to back in California. He had written to her in advance, and Helen, who was now married with a child, was more than happy to have George stay with them. George quickly became part of the family. It was Helen that showed George an article about the research of Dr. Christian Hamburger. Hamburger was a Danish endocrinologist, which is a branch of biology and medicine dealing with the endocrine system, its diseases, and the specific secretions known as hormones. George contacted Hamburger, and the doctor was so interested in his case that he agreed to meet George even though he was on vacation. George rode a bicycle to Hamburger's home and interrupted him as he was painting his ceiling. 
The thing that really worked in George's favor, considering he didn't have much money, was Hamburger was very rich and wasn't too worried about being paid. And, considering he was more interested in research and discovery than taking care of sick people, he felt George would be an interesting research case. George liked Hamburger because he seemed to be the first doctor he had ever talked to that really understood what he was saying. Now, Hamburger first suggested psychotherapy, but that was something George wasn't interested in. He practically pleaded to be a female. For Hamburger, the case was more of a question of making George into a happy person rather than changing his sex. So George continued to take estrogen through injections with the amounts increasing over time, and he saved 100% of his urine so it could be analyzed. At the same time, George's happiness and social adjustments would be carefully monitored. And the hormones seemed to work. George gained weight, was happier, and had a better outlook about his life. He let his hair grow long and began to look for a job. It was probably about this time that he began presenting himself as a woman, wearing dresses and trying out different hairstyles. During the 10 months of hormone experiments, George consistently requested castration. Now, apparently, in Denmark at the time, permission was needed by the Ministry of Justice to perform such an operation. One of the few conditions in which they would approve such a procedure was if the subject was a homosexual. And even though George never considered himself a homosexual, he wrote a letter describing himself as just that, a homosexual. This was most likely to satisfy the Ministry of Justice. It was a very passionate letter describing the reasons for wanting this to be done. He finished the letter by writing, Without this chance for the future, I don't know if I can go on living a good constructive life. For to return now to my old way of life would destroy all my hopes and ambitions, as well as my body. This operation would not only help me, but perhaps open up a whole new field of investigation for similar cases such as mine. If you could only realize just how desperately we of my race need help, please accept this paper with apologies, for I fully realize that with these words you shall judge the whole future of my life. George's request was approved, so on September 24, 1951, a 30-minute surgical procedure removed George's gonads. Soon after the operation, George started calling himself Christine. This castration was only the first of other operations he would need to become a woman. Now, unable to find a job, he wrote both his sister and an old friend asking for a loan. They both sent about $400 each. But after making a deal with Hearst newspapers in which they would get exclusive rights to a story, he got $25,000 and he paid back both loans. In a letter to his parents, she wrote on June 8, 1952, she told him three main things, that he was healthy and happy, that he was receiving marvelous medical treatments, and most important, he was now living as their daughter named Chris. Nature has made a mistake, she wrote, which I have corrected, and now I am your daughter. The news that their son was now their daughter was a hard one for the Jorgensons to believe. They were both confused, as you can imagine any working-class family from New York in the early 50s would be. During 1952, she took steps to having her passport sex classification changed from a man to a woman 
or at least having her name legally changed from George to Christine. Also during this time, she dated a United States U.S. Airman, Sergeant Bill Colhorn. Of course, she still had a penis, so we can only assume that she kept it tucked away. In November of 1952, Christine went through another operation, this time to remove the penis. By December, the story of George becoming Christine was making headlines all over the world. The New York Daily News surprised readers with the headline, XGI Becomes Blonde Beauty, with the subheading, Operation Transform Bronx Youth. This started a debate all over the world. Some thought it was real, some thought it was a hoax, some thought you just can't make a man into a woman, and a lot of people asked, well, can she have babies? On February 12, 1952, Christine returned home, landing at New York's Idlewood International Airport. She stepped off the plane onto the aluminum stairs in front of newsreel cameras. Once down, she went back up the stairs and inside the plane to make that walk once again, making sure the cameramen got all the footage they needed. She was an instant celebrity. After answering a few questions, she said, Thank you all for coming, but I think it's all too much. Of course, she would later say that she would have preferred not to have all the publicity, but many have suspected that it was Christine that leaked the story to the press in the first place, and the attention that she received was exactly what she wanted. Of course, she always denied this. Soon she developed a nightclub act, later saying, according to the New York Times, I decided that if they wanted to see me, they would have to pay for it. She never seemed to regret what she had done, often singing, I enjoy being a girl. In the spring of 1954, Christine Jorgensen had the final operation to become a woman. In a small hospital in New Jersey, plastic surgery was performed using skin grafts taken from her upper thighs to create a vaginal canal and external female genitalia. It was a seven-hour operation. In the 1960s, she made rounds of the college campus circuit lecturing about transsexuality and providing counsel and comfort to transgender people. She wrote her autobiography in 1967 called Christine Jorgensen, a personal autobiography. That book was made into a film in 1970. At times, she worked as an actress and nightclub entertainer and recorded several songs. She lived a fairly long life, but as a smoker, Christine Jorgensen died of bladder and lung cancer in 1989. And as far as we know, she was still very happy with her decision. In the news once again is Christine Jorgensen, shown being honored by the Scandinavian Societies of Greater New York at their annual ball and Named as Woman of the Year, she modestly disclaims the credit for her accomplishment. Thank you very much, Dr. Berlin. I want to say how deeply I am touched by this honor that has given, been given to me tonight, but I feel that those who should have been with us and were unable to be here are the ones that are really responsible for my success. That's my doctors and my friends. Thank you again. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to the sad sack. A little bit before I go. First, I'd like to thank listener Joe for suggesting today's subject. He suggested this way back in March and reminded me again just recently. 
Thanks, Joe. I learned a lot. Remember, if there's something out there that you'd like to know about, let me know. I'll do the research and we can learn together. I should point out that 95% of today's story came from the book Becoming a Woman, a biography of Christine Jorgensen by Richard F. Doctor. Before I did that, I looked all over the internet and I couldn't find much at all, just a couple of paragraphs here and there with the briefest of history. That includes Wikipedia. So I just used his book as my major source, but I did also use part of Christine's autobiography and a, a few other things here and there. And I know I say this a lot, but I feel compelled to say this every time I do a, a piece like this, that there's so much more to the story than I can possibly tell here. I mean, how can I tell the story of a person's life in 20 minutes? I just can't. So what I did today was focus all my efforts on what I thought brought her to have a sex change. There's even a lot of interesting stuff after the sex change. Her life, marriages, and stuff like that, but hey, I can only do so much. One last thing, if you see a film and there's something silly in it that doesn't make any sense and takes you right out of the story, let me know about it. I might use that in What's Wrong With This Picture. And don't be afraid to send me your story ideas. <laughs> but whatever, let's get to the ending credits. If you want to help us at SciCon keep all this wonderful entertainment available on the internet, then visit our Patreon page. Just go to SciCon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And a sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of SciCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? The Mouseketeers are back with their 223rd episode. If you enjoy multiplayer online games, you should give Jen and Tempo a listen. You can find this and other SciCon shows at SciCon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain or just say hi, send me a message. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. Story ideas are always welcome and usually needed. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin to help financially, and believe me, I understand that, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review. Those really help. And remember, all the links to the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Copy with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Thomason for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those who repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. My best wishes to everyone in 2018. Bye. Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff
Some coffee with 